Richard Herring, it is wonderful to see you. Wonderful to have you on my <laughs> 20 Questions with podcast. The last time I saw you, we were on stage at the Cheltenham Festival. That's right, yes. Cheltenham Chelsea Literary Festival, Literature Festival, whichever it is. And <laughs> that was a really interesting experience because we basically sat on a stage on a Saturday night, I think it was, and we talked about balls. Not football. <laughs> But we your did. balls. <laughs> my ball, my balls, my my expunge ball, and my remaining my remaining ball. Yes, I, I had uh, testicular cancer a couple of years ago, but uh, and I've written a book about the experience. Can I have my ball back? And um, yeah, it's not everything's okay. I think as we speak. So that's uh, it's been an interesting couple of years, but uh, hopefully, hopefully we've got through it. So we will talk more about that later. But first yeah. of all, I want to ask you this. I mean, you're a comedian, you're a podcaster, you're a writer, as we've heard. What's it like being Richard Herring? <laughs> uh, what a very good question. Uh, that's the question I asked to Stephen Fry, uh, except with Stephen Fry at the end that got him to open up in a very early version of my podcast, which is funny enough, was written by, uh, was, was posed by a 10-year-old child who's now... Uh, an 18 year old 19 year old 20 year old man and working on my podcast so that's weird uh it is okay i think i'm 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 i uh quite like being me i feel quite lucky overall i feel lucky to be living in this day and age as a historian and uh realizing how terrible life would have been for someone like me pretty much any other period of history than this one um, I I sort of feel also for I mean I I, I like the fact in 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 personal terms my I now have a family which I, I, it brings me immense happiness which I didn't have I, I met my wife when I was forty and I had my kids when I was approaching fifty or over fifty um, and uh, I'm very glad that's happened but I also sort of think in career terms things didn't turn out exactly as I would have planned as a twenty year old but. I, I don't I think this might be what I have might be <laughs> almost the ideal uh, career path of someone in this business as well, in that I can sort of do whatever I want and um, I still make a, a pretty nice living. But most people aren't aware of who I am. <laughs> so, so I live something close to a normal life, uh, doing a job I love with a family I love. Uh, and um yeah, so I, I sort of every now and again I think oh yeah, I'm not I'm not happy about everything, but um, every now and again I think maybe this is the the sort of luckiest life someone like me could could have, even if yeah, it's, it probably wouldn't have been what I would have chosen thirty years ago. What would you have chosen thirty years ago? Well, I think I would have. You know, I sort of I don't know. I, I, there was it's it's I'm a mixture because I would have just loved to make a living as a comedian. And didn't really believe that was possible. Maybe 35 years ago, I wouldn't have believed that was necessarily possible. So I would be delighted about this aspect, I think. But I think I would have, I would have aimed as a 19 or 20 year old. I would have hoped, as opposed to be uh, the most famous comedian or like a very successful comedian, or at least be on TV all the time, and uh, you know, be in sitcoms and 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 have my scripts accepted and that sort of thing, and. Uh, you know, I think uh, I think as nice as those things would be, in some ways, I think that if if I'd achieved them, certainly if I'd achieved them when it was likely that I could have achieved them, which would have been about thirty years ago, uh, I don't think they would have done me any good. So it, it's sort of nice to, you know, I've been lucky to work my whole life, and um, 
you know, and I've sort of been fortunate that it's it's all carried on, but it's nothing I've done, I think, has, has shot me into the, <laughs> into the firmament where things... I've just listened to Matthew Perry's um, audio book, and it's quite a sad listen, and he's not hugely self-aware, I don't think, and you sort of... It's a it's a tale of what happens if someone becomes the most famous person in the world, and now how that isn't necessarily the greatest thing that can happen to you. So I, you know, I think uh, I think there would have been a part of me as a younger man who would have. I love Rick Mail. I love you know. I'd have loved to have been Rick Mail, uh, but but also very early on, I worked with people like Steve Coogan and Chris Morris and Armando Iannucci, and I think I knew. There, even then, even working with them in like 1991 or whatever it was, that you know, I wasn't going to be the the, the, the star of the generation, uh, you know, which all three of those guys probably are. If you were describing yourself, or rather your career, to an alien, if you were introducing <laughs> yourself to a podcast like this, how how would you describe yourself and your I mean, career? What you yeah. are, who, what you do? I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, again, you know, I think any other time, place, you wouldn't, what I do wouldn't be understood. You know, even in, in trying to explain my career to my granddad, I think would be would be difficult. So to my great granddad, um, I mean, you know, I, I I see myself primarily as a comedian, although you know, I haven't done stand up comedy regularly uh, over the last five. You know, it's five years since I last did a big tour of stand up, and I haven't really done all that much stand up in the last five years. Um, but I've always enjoyed doing lots of different things. So I think at the moment I'm, you know, I'm primarily a podcaster and a podcasting comedian. And and, and I realised 15 years ago, 16 years ago, when I, I started that there was an awful lot of potential in this medium, especially for someone like me, who I'd rather get ideas out there than necessarily have them all... Uh, lauded or all even listened to, so it's, it's given me an immense uh, luck. I've got I've got one very successful one, which is Rich Stone's Less Square Theatre Podcast, which has adverts and which pays for everything else, and then I can do a few esoteric and weird ones. So I'm I'm all you know I'm a comedian, I'm a writer, I'm a podcaster, I'm almost a performance artist, um, and I, I'm I can't draw and I and I I have sort of limited imagination, but some of the podcasts I do I consider to be uh, works of sort of humorous art in that they are deliberately tedious or deliberately boring but saying something about the human condition so I'm quite you know in, in professional terms I am quite hard to pin down and yeah you know all of the thing I mean I, I do I do a podcast where I I pick up stones off a field and try to remove them off a field I do a podcast where I play myself at snooker I do a podcast where I talk to a ventriloquist dummy made by my great granddad that's 131 years old um and those are all quite hard things to explain to anyone how that would be a job uh, and most of them don't make any money so, so they I suppose they aren't <laughs> clearly people have different tastes Richard but what, what what for you makes a good podcast um I think it's just anyone who understands what's exciting about the medium and so there and I think there's I think there's more to this medium than a lot of people have realized so I think it's just something that someone's very passionate about. And it, to me, then that doesn't, you know, if that the beauty of a podcast is there's it's a worldwide audience and you only need to chime with a few hundred people out of the seven billion people in the world for it to be considered, you know, a success, really. But, you know, but even if it's one person 
I feel it's a success. Even if it's no people, it's sort of still a success as long as you're creating something that is true to you. So I think it's people who use it as a as a as a way to express themselves in a, in a in a way that I think wouldn't be possible in any other medium. And what I love about podcasting, and I always loved about it, was the freedom to do anything you want. The fact that you could come up, you know, you and I could come up with an idea now and and have it up as a podcast by midnight you know we could do we could record something and stick it up and it would be it would be online and people could listen to it so i think it's that freedom it's the it's the fact that you're autonomous uh, and anyone who really grasps that grasps that and finds a way to make that their own and to do something that that wouldn't really exist anywhere else those are the those are the things i really like you know i like i like that you can do long form things i like the fact you can do tiny short things uh, but and I, I think the scope of it, which I always sort of realised, I think the scope of it, I mean, and I was doing podcasting almost before anyone else. So I started in 2008, January 2008, and there were very few podcasts, but I, it immediately, I knew, I, I liked the fact that there was no censorship was what I first enjoyed about it at a time when everyone was really walking on eggshells. Uh, but but I think just if you're doing something you love and you put and and you do it well, and you just keep doing it. I think eventually people will will find it, at the, or at least some people will find it. Uh, and and that's what I think is exciting about it. It's it's you know it is that autonomy. I think. Explain to people who haven't listened to or attended the Leicester Square Theatre podcast what it is, what you're trying to do. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I don't think about it too much, and I was listening to something today about uh, I think like about Paul McCartney it was the, it's the book I'm reading about Paul McCartney live and let uh, die live and love and let die uh, is the name of this book uh, and uh, Paul McCartney can't can't write music and doesn't want to learn how to write music in case that destroys the magic of it and whilst not comparing myself to Paul McCartney in any other way I think uh, I think the beauty of the Let's Go Theatre is part podcast is that I haven't really nailed anything down with it so the the idea is it is that i used to do a podcast with the journalist andrew collins and we just chat about the week's news and then that kind of came to an end and i thought oh maybe i can do it with a different person every week and it sort of turned more into being an interview generally with the, with that whoever that guest is but it but it's also a chat but it it it's you know it's two people one of them who was always me uh talking uh just talking about usually someone's career but also anything else that comes up uh in front of an audience which again i think was the thing that divided that that made it different than than all the other two men talking to each other generally or two people talking to each other uh podcasts that the, the audience becomes this extra beast and an extra part of it and so we're trying to be funny, usually, but sometimes, as I said, mentioned with the Stephen Fry thing, it becomes quite serious. Um, but it's a free-form, long-form interview where I have people on who I like and I can talk to them in detail. And I think having been interviewed a lot, I know, and it's usually comedians, not always comedians, I know what not to ask them. I know the questions that will bore them. Uh, and so I try to find, you know, if I know there's an interesting story, I might, I might push the person towards that but I'm also more interested in finding out new stuff so I'll tend to I'll tend to focus on people's failures as much as their successes because because they don't get talked about very much but the idea is just to have a have a chat with someone interesting and be entertaining in front of an audience and and it not be scripted and it not be here's my question these are the questions I'll be asking you have a think about it and I think because it's open-ended and because they know I'll listen and they know I'm not going I'm not trying to catch them out with anything 
you end up getting a lot more out of people because they they tell stories that they wouldn't tell you know, if they're on the radio and it was a five minute section and or they felt someone would uh, and you know stop them before they finish the story or edit it. So it, it's it's a very free form interview with luckily as it's turned out not quite sure how this has happened you know most of the funniest people in the UK and and even the world so it's it's you know we've done um I think we've done over 500 episodes if you include the Edinburgh versions and the various specials and stuff we've done we've maybe done about 600 episodes of it sometimes we're returning guests but uh there's something in there that that people would enjoy I think being on stage with someone else, someone else well known, you say you, you're not many people know who you are, but you have a big following yourself. Being on stage with someone else, does that help take the pressure off you? How do you compare it to stand-up comedy when you're up there on your own? Yeah, well, I always preferred, you know, for a long time I preferred working with other people. I was obviously in a double act and I'd, I've, I've often worked with other people. I always like doing collaborative things. I like writing sketches and I like um, working, I liked, you know, working with other people, writing plays. And I, for a long time, I resisted doing solo stand-up. So actually, for me, going back to solo stand-up was much harder than the idea of being with someone else. I think it's there's times I'm nervous with the podcast. If it's something I had Sir Michael Palin on, who's, I, who's my absolute hero, and I was very, you know, I was very nervous about that. But you know, I've got quite good. I think having been in double acts and been the high status and the low status person in in different podcasts, I'm quite good at understanding where to pitch myself with my guest where, where I'm going to be whether I'm going to be fall guy whether I'm going to be the funny one whether I'm going to be you know so it's I think I've got quite a good understanding of of how to work with other, with other people and how to have that and the more I do of this obviously hopefully the better I get at it so I I, I think I'm a good person to do that in, in that I can shift my role uh, within a conversation so I find having another person there it does relax you because you think well I've got Greg Davis sitting opposite me if I absolutely fail to think of a funny question he's going to think of something funny to say. So, you know, occasionally it can, as you'll know, as an interviewer yourself, occasionally it can, you're worried it can grind to a halt and, or, you know, someone might not be giving you much back, but that is a challenge as well in itself. And I very early on came up with this idea of having some of what I call emergency questions, which are just some weird questions that I can ask if, if I feel things are going off the rails or if they're going well and I just want to ask a stupid question. And that was, again, an accidental, you know, bit of cleverness on my part. I didn't do it. I did it because I, I was actually, because I interviewed Jonathan Ross and at one point couldn't think of anything to say and thought, I've got to have something. <laughs> I've got to have something there ready to go in case that happens again because I was overwhelmed knowing he was such a good interviewer. It was a very early one of, the, of these. And so, you know, having a list of questions you can throw in and then those questions became became a big part of the podcast. I don't I don't use them as much as I used to, but, they're, you know, it's kind of nice for the audience to know that a familiar question might come up or, you know, or that a new one might come up. You know, I get, I get bored of them myself quite quickly, so I do change them around quite a lot. Do you consciously open up about yourself to put the person you're interviewing at ease so that they are more likely to open up? themselves yeah I mean I don't think I don't know if it is conscious or not I mean I think as a stand-up I've realized that being honest and open is a fantastic way to put people at their ease as an audience I think people if you are honest and say the terrible things you've done or the stupid things you've done people think oh god you know it's, that's like me I've I've done stupid things too and if you're being someone who's is closed off then I think it's very difficult to get other people to open up so I don't think it was conscious really um, I, you know I've, I have realized that it's a technique that works but I am just quite an open person and I, I am a quite honest person 
And if something's funny, I want to say, you know, I don't care if I'm, I, I, as long as I'm, we're getting laughs for most of the podcast where we're trying to get laughs, uh, I don't care about anything else really. So I don't, I'm not bothered if the, if, I, the, if a story I tell reflects badly on me. I'm also aware that sometimes going into, sometimes, you know, it's, I do two shows a, a day, a night, and they're quite long. And sometimes I almost em- enter a sort of dream state where I don't quite know what, I'm saying, but I'm also aware that those are very exciting podcasts because you get by going somewhere weird or admitting something odd. Sometimes I admit something odd that isn't true. You know, there's there's a few tropes and jokes in there that uh, like that I want to have sex with robots with a sex robot. I don't really want to do that. Uh, (laughs) But I I go my character of Rich Tone goes on about that a lot. Um, But, you know, you know, you realize by going into an area like that, that it will elicit good comedy from the other person and and something else from the the other person and get them to open up. And And I think what's interesting about those emergency questions and why they work is because we, as an interview subject, you're used to being asked the same things all the time. So the minute you're asked something that you would never have been asked before, you use a different part of your brain, I think, to answer that question. You have to come up with something rather than do your rehearsed answer. And and then I think once that door's opened, I think the the, the questions after that make people open up as well. So I think it, you know, it's. I wish I could say I was clever enough to have planned that, but I, it's just by trial and error I've kind of realised that that does work i think that i think that openness and that honesty yeah does make people want to be honest and sometimes people uh you know joe lysett recently did a very open interview but was volunteering all kinds of stuff and i didn't really he said how did you do this how did you open me up and i didn't really do anything he wanted to he wanted to <laughs> to talk about this stuff uh and uh, i think the audience puts people you know i think we have a very nice audience for our podcast uh and they're a very appreciative audience and they understand comedy and I think it does just create this. When the, with that Stephen Fry one, which I keep going back to, there was just such a lovely atmosphere in the room. I'm sh- absolutely sure he did not plan to talk about this uh, suicide attempt he'd had, uh, but it just everything fell into place, and he, you know, he realised this was the right place to to do it. And that's a tribute to the audience, I think, again rather than to me. Explain how an audience helps create an atmosphere, or how you create an atmosphere with an audience. Uh, you know, it's but it's it's part of the magic. That's part of the magic of performance. You know, it's 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 not quite. You can't quite pin that down, and it's not every audience. And some audiences, you know, it, there's a feeling. You sometimes you feel the audience is is pulling you in. Sometimes you feel without without even really doing anything. Sometimes you feel the audience is egging you on to to take an idea further. Sometimes you know that they. They don't. They're not going with you. Sometimes it feels like a barrier there, but just sometimes it's open. It opens up. So it's an instinctive thing, or a, a you know, or, or, or yeah. I mean, it, it, you feel it rather than creating it necessarily or knowing it. But but when there's when you have a sympathetic audience, I guess there's with it with comedy. If there's pure silence, that's sort of as good as everyone laughing. You know, like there's there's sort of nothing really beats everyone in the room laughing as hard as they can laugh. And that's a very rare thing for a comedian to actually experience, funny enough. You know, I can think of a few times in my career where I've got something that I know has got an audience and actually I've got something a bit funnier coming up and the audience are already uh, in trouble. Uh, but but when they're purely quiet and they're purely listening uh, and there's no shuffling around, you know, you just, you feel it. I guess just being on stage, you you, under, you, understand, you understand it. And yeah, and it can be about, it can sometimes be a barrier. Sometimes an audience, you can feel the barrier has gone up and, and 
you know, and you can become self-conscious and you can all, you know, you see comedians every now and again asking the audience what's wrong and why aren't they laughing? Uh, but there, there's there's some just change of atmosphere in the room. But I couldn't, you know, I couldn't tell you how you would how you would know or why I know or why. You know, and sometimes I may have got it wrong, but I think basically there's a warmth there when 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 everything's opened up. And and I guess, you know, if a, if a room people, a, a room people are laughing at you in the right way and they get what you're doing and you're a performer I think you'd want to carry on making that audience happy. So you, so that the fact that audience is there is is really, I think, what draws out that little extra bit that I think I managed to get with this podcast. I haven't opened up myself to you, Richard. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're, tried... you're, you're a very closed book, Matthew. I've always thought that. <laughs> I was, I was, I was very happy to open up when I presented my LBC <laughs> shows. But I'm trying to make these interviews about the person I'm interviewing, and and, and sort of almost consciously stripping myself back. So yeah. I haven't opened myself up. However, I'm now going to ask you to open up and tell me, because you've sort of almost set this implicit challenge, what your biggest insecurity is, if you have any. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I think I have had a lot of insecurities. Um, I, you know, I, I think you're constantly, as a creative person, you're constantly questioning whether you are any good, whether, you know, whether you, what you're doing is worthwhile. <laughs> um, I think it's... You know, I've worked with people who've un- who've have undermined me, and I've been in positions. You know, you get reviewers who undermine you, you get other acts who undermine you. So I think you know, there's there's certainly and and Twitter or what social media is full of people who want to tell you they don't like you or that you aren't funny. It's sort of weird as a comedian because I think uh, as a comedian you sort of know if you're doing your your job well and more than anyone more probably than any other job in the world because you have instant reaction and instant feedback on everything you say. So you know if you're not funny because nobody's laughing and, and every comedian's had that experience so they know what that feels like. Equally, they know if, they, if they're going well. Have You know, you're still, you, but you are your own harshest critic so it doesn't, what anyone says on social media won't get to me. Or, or really, I think most comedians because we will have made that criticism about herself so i think you've you have to have that self-consciousness and you have to have that question of whether you know uh, whether you know if, if it's it, it you know I've, I've, I've a relatively successful career and you still think you know do i deserve it have i done everything you know i work very hard and you know and i've done a lot of most of my things in the last 20 years have been completely off my own bat uh, and so you sort of think well i must be doing something right but you'll still question it you'll still question whether you got lucky or whether, you know, I, I, when you think about it sensibly, of course not, because you think, well, people are, people are paying their money to come and see you and they wouldn't, you know, no one's going to do that <laughs> unless <laughs> in order to trick you. But I think you are, you know, so you we do get paranoid and you do, I think in the past, especially I've worried about what, about whether it will end, you know, whether, whether I will carry on being funny, whether people will carry on finding me funny. I don't really have that as an issue anymore because i think you know i've done it long enough and i've always kept on coming up with stuff and if anything in the last two or three years i've I've had more ideas than ever and so you get to the point we think okay i think you know i'm probably doing this until you know i stop breathing or until i stop being able to walk on stage or until i stop you know having the mental capacity to do this job anymore so yeah i don't i don't um you know, I, some, I, I sometimes have that imposter syndrome, but, you know, some some imposter, I know there are some people who do well in the business and aren't any good. So, you know, maybe there are some imposters in there. What's it like winning awards? 
Uh, you know, I, I, that hasn't happened to me a lot. You know, it's it's um, and again, it bothered me for a long time. I, I started out and one of the earliest shows I wrote for was called On the Hour. It was on the radio. We won loads of awards, but I was just a writer in a, this team of amazing people. Uh, and um, it was kind of great to have that affirmation so early on. But then the show went on and, and things happened. And I ended up not being in the day to day with the TV show and all the Alan Partridge stuff. So it was sort of a bit of a double edged sword. And then nothing I did for a long time got any recognition at all. And so it's easy to sort of feel bitter and weird about that. And, and especially having, I suppose, had a little taste of it. And so, but but I I take it all with a massive pinch of salt. I think it's useful um, to win an award, and so you can go here. This is my award winning podcast, and that might make some people you know listen, and might make some people be guests on it. But you're also you know I also look at award ceremonies. I've been on award committees, and I know how random a lot of the decisions are, and how poorly some of these things are put together. Is most of them aren't about who's the best. It's who's paid to be you know, who's paid to enter or which program has the channel chosen to put forward for this award. And so it's not like there's a room full of experts sitting there listening to everything and watching everything and going, this is the best thing. So, you know, I think they're a nice thing if they happen, but I, but I don't take it. I think, I think you have to do, but you can't take criticism too seriously as long as you're happy with what you're doing yourself and you can't take accolades or people telling you you're brilliant too seriously. You just have to get on with, with what you're doing. You know, that's I suppose the, the nice thing about having an award is that it might convince um, if in TV and radio terms, it might convince you to get, you know, get another commission for another series. But yeah, I, I don't, it, it, it's, it doesn't uh, fill my heart with joy. I think, I think I'm much, I'm much happier if I get an email from someone saying that something I did really meant a lot to them or, you know, which, and the, the as you'll probably have found out with podcasts as well. I think a lot of people, who are, in a, who are in a difficult place will listen to podcasts and then they might email you and say that really helped me through <laughs> through this dark time and you know I'd never thought any of my stu- the stupid things I'm doing online would help people so that is much nicer when you have this kind of accidental little nudge on and help someone out I suppose. How do you look back at your childhood your father was a headmaster I think your mother yeah was a teacher as well my my mother's father was a headmaster what was it like your growing up years I mean I really liked being a kid I think it was my dad was my headmaster my both my parents taught me because I was in a, I grew up in a village and they were both you know I went to the school uh two schools where there my mum was a teacher in my middle school and my dad was a dad taught me a-level maths as well as being my headmaster and so I don't it was that was a bit weird and I think it I did a whole show about it and I thought that maybe it had uh had a had a, a knock-on effect to my confidence and whether I was suspicious of whether I, I assumed other people were suspicious of me because my dad was the headmaster and that's how I'd grown up but I kind of realized that everything that is that makes me me my humor my sort of obsession with sex and uh you know all uh, and my silliness were all there before um I went to the school with my dad uh and equally my dad was a quite a popular headmaster everyone I, everyone I meet goes you know, how's your dad? They love, you know, so it wasn't like I had this uh, albatross around my neck. It was, you know, it was it was a nice childhood, I think, looking back at it. And I grew up in Somerset mainly, in Cheddar. And um, I li- I really liked school and I was good at school. It's good academically. Um, and it did lots of comedy and had lots of fun. And so I actually kind of slightly, I, li- I also liked just being told to go somewhere to do something. 
certainly 20 years ago, I would have really liked it if just someone said, right, first lesson of the day, you have to go and write your book. (laughs) You have to go and do this or come to a big room. I've kind of an idea of, you know, a school for comedians where we could all just go because it's quite lonely being a writing and and when you're sitting at home writing all day, it'd be quite nice just to go to a school with other comedians and, and just be able to work together and then go out to play for half an hour. So I, I, I kind of, I think my childhood was good. My parents were quite strict, for, in, but but not not in, and you know they've been very supportive of me. And uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't. Maybe that's you know I think a lot of comedians have tragedy in their in their childhood or you know stuff stuff to deal for it with from their childhood. And I don't have that. And I think I did. I got into comedy because I just liked people who could make me laugh. And I loved the I loved the feeling I got from making other people laugh. And maybe I needed. Maybe I needed some terrible thing to happen to me as a kid to become to become really successful. What is this obsession with sex of which you speak? I love you know. I was just you know. I was always interested. So I remember, you know, I knew it was this hidden thing, and I and I was sort of fascinated with it right from the get go. And I saw a couple of uh, open university programs when I was little. I saw how a baby was created. I saw that I went to tell my mum and dad about the spur. I was fascinated with the. Sp- the tadpoles that would that would create a baby, uh, and I saw uh, an open university program about Unshan uh, Andalus, which is a Louis Brunel surrealist film in which a lady's breast is shown. And I remember I knew I liked that, uh, but I didn't understand why. And I was sort of obsessed with various pop stars and stuff. And so I was quite, but I was, you know, I was a very late starter with sex. And I was, and I was, and I was because my parents have been together their whole lives, basically since they were thirteen. I sort of assumed I'd be with one person. But I think you know, and I and I wasn't uh, you know as a teenager. I was. I mean, I think I lost my virginity when I was about four months off being twenty. You know, so I wasn't. <laughs> I might have been obsessed with it, but I wasn't doing it. But I, you know, I always, I always, I, I enjoyed the feelings, and I enjoyed what it, what it, uh, the mystery of it. And then, obviously, once I did start having sex, I enjoyed the, the having sex. But I, I think I also appreciated what was funny about it, and a lot of a lot of my comedy. Uh, has been, you know, based around that because it's this thing that, again, is secret that people are slightly ashamed about, but that is, you know, sort of a, a comical thing. And so I've done a lot of work around men's genitals in my in my time, uh, having done Talking Cock 20 years ago and now moved on to the balls. So the balls have uh, kind of forced me to look at them. And, and you know, you realise how screwed up people are about these subjects. I mean, Talking Cock was a real... Um, eye-opener for me because I did an anonymous online questionnaire about it and I kind of thought I'm worried about this or I'm worried about that but you realise how much people are suffering uh, in silence about stuff that isn't important at all or isn't even true you know a lot of men worry about their penis size and turn out to have even above average size penises because they're looking at the (laughs) the wrong things or comparing themselves to the wrong things not that it matters anyway so you know it's sort of I think there's this I think as a comedian in the same way that religion interested me and the supernatural interested me because it was this mysterious thing and we didn't know, you couldn't tell what was true and what wasn't true. And I think comedically, those those are the things that will be interesting as well because people either hold ridiculous views about them. Uh, it, it, is very, it is very similar to religion in that way that people, I mean, often it, it goes hand in hand with religion, obviously because the religious views affect how people feel about sex. Why are you not religious? Um, I think it just, you know, I was brought up as a Christian and um, I, and, I, and I did a show about Jesus when I was 33. 
that was, you know, very sympathetic to, to him as a man. I just didn't buy uh, any of the stuff. Behind. I mean, I didn't like the idea of um, punishing people for behaving how they've been created to behave, supposedly, uh, you know, and it didn't make any sense to me. And I, and I think, again, as, as a comedian's instinct, anything where people hold completely strongly held beliefs and won't allow you to question them, you have to ask why they're not allowing you to question them. Because if something's true, you can question it. So I'm happy for any of my, you know, I don't, I don't hold very many like definite views. My feeling is that there probably isn't a God of any kind and there probably isn't an afterlife of any kind, but you know, I don't know. <laughs> so It just feels like you can trace back. The more I studied it, you can trace back where religions come from and you can trace back why, how Christianity developed and what it changed from what it became and and why. And I just would think if you're going to base your whole life on uh, a religion and Christianity is the one I know about best, which is the only reason I talk about Christianity over the others, uh, you'd think you'd want it to make sure it was definitely true. You know, there's, and, and everyone's capable of any religious person is immediately saying all the other religions are wrong. So they're only one step away from, from joining me. They're only one. They've only got one more one to tick off the list. So if you can say, you know, I think um, Hinduism is, is, isn't true. That's offensive to Hindus. But, you know, equally, you know, it, it, you've made that decision uh, or Islam or whatever. So it's, you know, it's um, it just it just I didn't like I was made to go to church. I didn't like it. I I, I was interested enough to think about the things. And I think logically it doesn't make much sense why a god would create a, a, from nothing would create a load of imperfect people <laughs> to then judge them when he could have just made them not be imperfect in the first place just what, what why has he done it it doesn't make sense so uh, but you know if he comes down and and uh, if i go to go to heaven he goes you know turns out it was me i go uh, you know Tell me where you where you see yourself as coming from, because I think you were born in Yorkshire, brought up in Somerset. Yes. Uh, where where are you? Who are you? Have I got any of that wrong? No, I was born in Yorkshire. Uh, my parents from Middlesbrough, but I was born in a place called Pocklington near York, where my dad was working at the time. We moved to Leicestershire for, when I was four for about four years, and then we moved to Somerset when I was eight, and I lived there till I was eighteen. Then I lived in uh, I went to university, and then I lived in uh, London from the age of you know, early 20s till about five years ago. Now I live in Hertfordshire. I don't really, I mean, I my my I support Yorkshire-based sports teams. So I support York City and uh, I don't really follow cricket, but I wouldn't support Yorkshire probably. But maybe Somerset at cricket. Uh, but I sort of feel Somerset feels more like my home. But I equally feel, you know, because I've lived everywhere, I, I or, you know, a lot in England, uh, and I spent a lot of time in Scotland, obviously, at the Edinburgh Fringe. I, d I don't really kind of feel passionately, I am this thing, I am that thing. You know, I'm from the north, but I've lived in the south. So I, I don't really, you know, I, I, I have a, I, I feel like a northerner at heart, but I feel like a southerner <laughs> in every other way. So, yeah, I think in the, in a sense that that moving around so much is is good because it's not, you know, you're not like passionately stuck with one place. And, and I, I, I feel, you know, I feel that about the world. I don't... I, I, and the universe. I mean, why peg yourself down to one place? I like the United Kingdom and I like being English and I like being from Yorkshire and I like having been brought up in Somerset. Uh, and I think all those places are great, but I don't see, you know, I don't believe that having been born in Yorkshire makes me 
better than people born in Lancashire <laughs> and so on. You mentioned university very, very briefly. And I'm curious to know whether Oxford, which is where you went, was sort of always part of the plan or had been part of the plan for a while. And, and how that how being there, going there shaped you? If it didn't uh, at all. Yeah, I think it did. I mean, it wasn't a, it wasn't my my brother went to Oxford, so I knew a little bit about it. Uh, but it was he was like the only person in his year to go to Oxbridge, I think. And it wasn't we, you know, I was in a comprehensive school in in Cheddar, a very nice school and a very very good school, but a comprehensive school. It, and it was like you know, in the when my brother went in the early eighties or late seventies, even that was an amazing thing that he'd got into Oxford. Even when I went in eighty six, eighty seven. You know, I think maybe three people from our year had got into Oxbridge. It was it was sort of starting to happen a little bit for us, but it was difficult because they we didn't there was an entrance examination at the time and we didn't te- they didn't teach that at the school, so I had to get a conditional offer. I really wanted to go just because I wanted to be a comedian and I knew about the Oxford Review and I you know obviously the Cambridge Footlights is probably the bigger deal, but my friend was going to Cambridge and I didn't in my quite forceful personality of I didn't want to. I wanted to start again, not be at the same university. So in a way, choosing Oxford was partly not wanting to carry on, you know, being in the shadow of this other guy uh, and to choose some to choose somewhere different. And I didn't think I would get in. And I I was. And in fact, I didn't I nearly didn't apply. And I went and my school didn't force the issue. And I finally went, oh, I'm going to apply. And my teacher went, oh, thank God. I wondered when that was going to happen. Uh, so, you know, I, it was a big deal to get there. And but it was so, it was sort of a double edged sword because. And it still is a little bit because people think, oh, you went to Oxbridge, you know, you're, you're privileged, you're all part of this guy. You know, I didn't go to public school. Um, I was what I was part of what those elite universities should be is if you know, and the country should be, which it has stopped being, which is if someone is proves themselves bright or good at something, they should they should progress to the, the best jobs on the best universities. So I felt when I actually got there, I felt like I'd, I, you know, again, I felt a bit of imposter syndrome. I thought everyone else was way clever. All the public school boys were so um, uh, kind of confident uh, that I didn't feel that confidence. I was at St. Catherine's College, which is a bit, lot more mixed in terms of uh, state schools. I didn't really like the people <laughs> in my college, so I didn't hang around very much there. And so it was a great, it was a massive thing in my life because I, I wanted to go there to do comedy and, and I didn't think I'd be able to get in, you know, I thought it, the competition would be too great and that that dream would be over. But I went and started doing comedy. They just started up doing this Oxford Review workshop, which was a big deal. And, you know, quickly, well, the first time I had exams, so I didn't. I stayed in and revised my exams because I thought I was going to get kicked out. But after that, I kind of went to this comedy club and met Stu and uh, other people and, you know, quickly we sort of were doing really really well so it was like my dream come true but then we went to went to edinburgh the second in my second year and as the and i was in the oxford review which was i couldn't believe but at, you know it was at a point where alternative comedy was very much in the ascendant and and student student reviews were very old fashioned and looked down on and we and it almost we we at this at the exact point where you know that we we got a kicking really from comedians um Keith Allen sabotaged you know came to review our show but sort of sabotaged it and then walked out after one sketch and said we were crap on TV and then I went on to for a right to reply and he kind of just bullied me again and uh, we went to we did late and live and all the stand-ups in the country basically just came and heckled us so we had this absolute baptism of fire it was horrible and it nearly made me 
stop being a comedian. <laughs> Uh, and it's still, I think, really, I've still got to work through the feelings from it because it was very difficult to overcome. And so I had this, we were being blamed for, you know, the 30, 40, 50 years of predominance of Oxbridge comedy. And I understand that, but we we weren't, we were actually all state school kids. So it was sort of a little, and we were 19 or 20 and being bullied by grown up men. Uh, so it was, it was a bit of a nightmare. So I felt, I've, I, you know, I don't, I didn't work very hard at university because I just did drama and comedy and I loved it. And I met people that, you know, are my best friends now. And it was obviously really important in terms of progressing onwards, but uh, it sort of took something out of me as well. Uh, and, you know, I think in terms of our, our career, it was, I, I think probably on balance, it wasn't a help or a hindrance, but it, but it, it did feel like something you had to hide away, certainly through the nineties rather than admit to. Explain to us the chemistry between you and Stuart Lee, because you've mentioned him in passing and you and he were Herring and Lee. I mean, you were a significant double act. Yeah, I mean, you know, we were lucky we met each other. We met each other a couple of times, you know, sort of in passing and uh, didn't really uh, communicate. And uh, then we met sort of at a Christmas party and I was Poe going to the Sex Pistols. We'd had a term by that stage. I hadn't really been to the comedy clubs, I say, because I'd been revising and I'd done one, but he hadn't gone to that one because he was going to see Suzanne Vega. Uh, and so we hadn't seen each other, but we'd both seen what everyone else was doing and heard about what each other were doing or we talked about what each other were doing. And we kind of realised everyone else was sort of doing quite, you know, Monty Python-esque sort of sketches. And we were both we both felt we were doing something a little bit different than that. And we kind of... We decided to write to get. We had this good conversation, and Stuart remembered me. We were looking at old cricket teams, and I was making up stories about uh, the cricketers and you know imagining who they were, and uh, he'd found that quite amusing. So we decided to work together and, and just try writing a few sketches. And we just decided what we wouldn't do, and we just which was sat. You know, we didn't want to do political satire where Fergie has a big bum or whatever it would have been at the time, uh, and we didn't want to do Monty Python stuff. So we we kind of. We didn't want to do TV parodies, so we kind of we we kind of uh, uh, you know ruled a lot of stuff out and just started writing together. And it, yeah, it did you know it did um, click pretty quickly with us as a writing duo. We got a duo and we got a few friends together to make to do a sketch group, which again is sort of a bit unfashionable, but we but was working at the time as in in the at university at least. Um, and I guess there's you know we just had a similar sense of humour, but a, a different outlook. Again, you know, I'm just reading a book about the Beatles. And again, I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but in the way that Lennon and McCartney kind of complemented each other and personality wise, I think there's a sort of similarity in that I'm a bit more sort of uh, happy-go-lucky and outgoing and, you know, thumbs up Macca and he's a bit more John Lennon, I want to be cool and <laughs> whatever. And I think it kind of, I think that kind of gelled. Although weirdly in, in that university stuff, I was the high status one and he wasn't exactly low status, but. I think having had having it had it all kicked out of me at Edinburgh, I kind of lost this this sort of smug sort of high status character I had within that sketch group, and so yeah, we just thought you know we got on well and we and we wrote the Oxford View together that I was in, and we did a student show, we did a show the first year together, and we just you know we both wanted to come to London to to try comedy, but we sort of came and Stu was much more interested in doing stand up even then, and so he he you know we didn't it, we we it fell into the double act just because we did work on the radio and that started going well and and um we weren't working together on in the clubs so it there was always a little bit of um tension which i think helped um and it was it was you know we worked together pretty full on for 10 years um 
and it was it was a good thing i think at the end that it 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 fell apart we stayed quite good friends for quite a long time after and we became better friends in a way for not working with each other but um uh but yeah it, it was i think it was just we we both knew what we liked about comedy and we both wanted to do something different and we both brought something to the party i think in terms of you know it gelled while there were similarities what we did gelled quite nicely could i ask you about your blog is it yes. true that you have been writing a blog? I don't know whether you still do, but since 2002, every day, and that the British Library has archived it. Yeah, well, that's what I've been told, yeah. So, yeah, I, ha- I have done that, and I've written an entry for every day since November the 25th, 2002. So it's just had its 20th anniversary. That's including, you know, weekends, Christmas, holidays. Not all of them are, you know, fantastically long entries, but increasingly, I think it's early on, there are a few that are quite short, but they are they're probably all now a thousand words or more and it was just the idea of that was i just read salmon of doubt by douglas adams who uh, died obviously a few years before that and then they put together this collection of oddities of his and i just sort of thought and i was at a point where i had writer's block and and i'd sort of just i'd done lee and herring had finished and i'd also done time gentleman please which was this incredibly arduous uh 35 episode sitcom that i wrote mainly on my own (laughs) over two years uh, uh which was great because you know it, we got well paid but but it was it nearly i mean it burnt me out uh and i was also thinking what's the point in doing any of this if you know no no one really saw that show and you kind of think what's the point if no one's seeing the stuff so i kind of thought well if i just write something every day then a i'll have some i'll have some something that i've written but b it'll, it's called warming up because i hoped it would make me I'd have you got the juices flowing. I would then write what I was meant to be writing, but mostly I would just write warming up and think, "Oh, well, I've written something. I can go, I can go and get drunk again now." Uh, so it was a, it was a way to try and inspire me to beat writer's block in the first place. And I didn't really anticipate uh, it being much more than that. But then when I returned to stand up, I found it incredibly useful to have all the you know you it, at its best. I would just try and write something that's funny that happened to me the day before. Basically, I write it the day after, or try and pick out a detail. But it's but most days nothing happens to you, so you have to be very specific and home in on something. And sometimes, obviously, you don't you know it's 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 rubbish um, or not interesting. But you know, having forcing yourself to do it, you will find something most days. And then sometimes it really spins off into something quite good or something with some potential. So when I came to do stand up and when I came to write the weekly newspaper column, it was this amazing resource that I had that I could go, oh, I could turn. There was that time I went to the supermarket and the woman said, someone like, I bought nine yogurts and the cashier said, someone likes yogurt. And that, you know, and then people had liked that entry I wrote about it where I defended myself. Maybe that could be a routine. So, you know, suddenly when I was back doing stand up, this was it was very it was a really helpful thing to do but i think as a writer i you know and in writing things like my book it's, it was incredibly useful because i had a record not i wasn't writing about the cancer when it was happening very much until until the operation but i was writing about what was going on in my day and so when i was went back to write that book i had all this information about what was happening and you you read between the lines you know you couldn't help but but nod to it in a certain way but just knowing the stuff I'd done with my family and and knowing how I'd really felt when that was happening I don't think I'd remembered any of it even a year later I don't think any I'd remembered much of it so it's been this incredible resource uh but it's and it's made me much better as a writer I can write very quickly I I know how to kind of you know make something just work as a first draft it's sort of like putting your first draft up on the internet but I also don't ever think about anyone reading i don't know who reads it. i don't know if anyone really reads it but it's very useful for me and it's also 
yeah, I, I would advise any writers to do. You don't have to put it online, but just if I, I feel it for me again, if I do something and then it makes me go back and do it, you know, I'm a, I'm a very much all or nothing person. So if I decide I'll do something, if I'm doing it every day, I'll do it. If I decide I'm giving something, I've given up drinking for two years. If I if I have one drink, you know, that will go out, will go out the window, not because I'm an alcoholic, just because I'll go, oh, what's the point? I've had a drink now. I might as well have all the drinks. Um, but, um, you know, so I think like I'm a very all or nothing kind of person. But and I like, you know, once you've got to tw- once you've got to five years, you can't. It's quite a big deal to suddenly go, oh, I'm going to stop. <laughs> so, but once you're at 20 years, uh, you kind of go, well, so, you know, I'm go- I've got to keep this up now. Haven't I? And I think it's, you know, it's it's a really interesting document to have for for me and potentially my kids i guess in the future they can sort of see what was what what was going on in their childhoods where does the observer come from in you the observer that enables you perhaps to to be a comedian yeah i mean i think or or a storyteller you know yeah i mean you have to have that you have to be interested and you have to and you have to notice stuff i mean i don't think i'm super hyper observant you know and I, i there i think there are people there are comedians who just incredible things happen to and I'm not, I'm not very yes and in real life. You know, I'm quite shy in real life, and I would back away from if I saw a slightly crazy person in the street. I would probably back away rather than going, "Let's go on an adventure together." And some comedians will go, "Let's go on an adventure and see what happens." Um, but I do, yeah, I love, you know, I, and again, that's why I'm, I'm happy about the relative anonymity I have because I can sit in a coffee shop, and I'm not the story. You know, if Ricky Gervais is sitting in a coffee shop. He's the story. He's not going to see anything. If I sit in a coffee shop, I can see people passing by. I can hear other people's conversations. No one's paying me any attention. And so I've I've always been fascinated by people. I've always been, you know, I've always been fascinated by comedy. So I'm looking out for anything. And you know, and I think I'm not. I mean, I'm not consciously looking out. If you're consciously looking for comedy, you probably won't spot it. But I'm always, you know, be be ready for two ideas to collide and create a joke. Be ready to see something. But often with warming up, you know, it's not until I really rack my brain. Sometimes I'd sit there for two hours thinking, oh, nothing happened yesterday. I think with the yogurt one, which did become this show, a whole stand-up show, um, you know, I, I think I sat there for a couple of hours thinking, nothing happened yesterday, nothing. And I went, oh, that lady said someone likes yogurt to you. And then bang, you know, I suddenly, I ran with that idea. Uh, so, you know, I think it's, it, it, yeah, you've, you've, you've got, I think if you want to be a writer or if you want to be a comedian, unless you're a comedian you know there's all sides times of comedians but if you're going to be a comedian who's commenting on life or politics or whatever you have to be listening out and watching out and trying to work out what's what's amusing you about it and i think it's often the set you know it's the second thing a lot of the time so like for the first thing that occurs to you is rarely the the thing because that would occur to everyone it's it's coming in with the second thing that is oh this this is the interesting thing about this this is the thing that no one else or hardly anyone else would consciously think, or oh, this is this is where I can go with this idea. But yeah, I, you know, I don't know. I, I've always, I, I'm interested. I'm interested in life, and I'm interested in people. But more, I think it is true. I think it's more of as an observer than a participant. I, I would, I feel uncomfortable participating a lot of the time. So I, I, I kind of quite like sitting back and uh, and seeing what's going on. I want to come back, Richard, to where we began and, and ask you about your experience of cancer. And, and what I'm particularly interested in, I mean, you chronicled that in great detail in your book that we mentioned earlier, Can I Have My Ball Back? Particularly, I'm interested in how it has, if it has changed your outlook on life and made you realise even more the preciousness of life. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it, it's not like a huge revelation. It's not like turned me around because it was all things I was thinking anyway. 
but it really made me, you know, the thing that when I thought I was going to die or when, you know, when I got the call saying you've got cancer from a shaky voice, from a shaky voice, the doctor who wouldn't even say the word cancer. And my son was laughing next door in the room and I was thinking, oh, my God, he's three. He's not going to remember me and blah, blah, blah. You know, the, the thing that the, the very first instinctive reaction to it was was thinking about my kids in a bit of a, in a, in a selfish way and to the extent of going, you know, they won't remember me, but equally, oh God, what's going to happen to my kids? I sort of realised, which was something I'd been realising, uh, you know, ever since I had kids, obviously, that that was my main priority. That's where I wanted to be. And that everything else, as fun as it can be, is not really important. And, uh, you know, and so it just, it, it, it definitely made me think twice about whether I would accept doing something you know I quite I actually I mean I'd make a joke about it in the book but I quite liked when I had cancer because I didn't feel like I had cancer and I never really got very ill and you know it was a bit scary but it it felt it didn't feel like a real event I still don't quite believe I had cancer though I did but you know people would someone like you would email me and say oh can you come on my podcast and I could go oh sorry I've got cancer and then they, people would apologize for asking you so I kind of quite liked <laughs> being able to get out of stuff as a result of having cancer but I also thought well you know if you want to get out of stuff don't don't do it you know you, I did I did think you know I might have months to live I didn't until they talked to me properly about it after they had diagnosed it I didn't realize how curable and treatable it was so I was thinking you know and everyone else I know who's had cancer even if they've survived for a bit it's kind of got them and uh, all the people who've died young of it and so I was you know I you know you might have and, and even if I don't die of cancer I could die of you know could die of something else uh, or be run over or whatever you know there's a million ways to go so you do start to think well maybe you know when if you suddenly think I've got 24 months to live or two weeks to live or whatever you don't want to when you feel like life you know I felt I feel like life before I was thinking oh, I've got 30 more years my mum and dad are still alive and they're 30 years older than me so I'll be alive in 30 years time but I think it made me realise, A, you're, you start to decline, even if you survive. And so you won't have, you can't just go, oh, well, I'll wait till I'm 70 and then I'll do all the things I want to do because you won't be able to do half of them. But equally, you know, you don't, you know, choose the thing. I'm in a very, very, very lucky position where I can absolutely choose what jobs I do, what jobs I don't do, what what podcasts I don't choose to do, what ones I don't want to do. And so I, I think I've just got much better at going. And, and, and I've... And I, and I've consciously made an, an, an effort to, you know, and, and partly also with my wife's a writer as well. So, you know, she she had to look after me while I was ill and you kind of go, well, I want to make sure she has a chance to do her work. So you, you realise, I think just realising for sure, I've been obsessed with death my whole life, but I think it was only in that moment that I really thought, oh God, you know, I, will, yeah, I could die. I'm, I'm going to die. So it made me, yeah. I, I want, I want it. To, I want my time to be special. I want to spend it with people I love, which is basically my immediate family. I have to say, and uh, and you know, and to do things that I like. So I can do. I'd rather do my stupid podcast, moving stones around, than I don't know, be a panel. You know, be the be a be a be a team captain on a panel show that I don't think's any good. You know, so it's it's. It's, it gives you that choice. You know, I don't have much choice because no one's offering me that other thing. But, but you know, there's some some things come and you go. Yeah, I won't. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. I live an, an hour's drive from London. I'm not gonna drive into London unless it's it's something that I really really want to do and it's and it's worth half a day of my possible 24 months I've got left or whatever. 
I've got an admission to make, and that is that I've lost count of the questions. We've either done 19 or 20. <laughs> okay. So if, we, if we've if we already done 20, this is a bonus question. Okay. Do you have any special skills that we don't know about? I don't, you know, I don't think I really have many skills. I think I've, I utilise what little skills I have mainly in my job. Um, you know, I've got, but, you know, I was going to say I've got, I used to have like an incredible memory. Uh, it's not as good now. But so, but I use that in my job. So, like, I I learned the first page of the, the begat thing: the Abraham begat Isaac, Isaac begat Jacob, Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, which I did a big routine about. But I could do it backwards and forwards, and the acronym of it. But I don't think my memory's as good. Although I re I remember things from the past, so I can still do that. But my memory is is fading a little bit. And I'm not sure that would surprise people. Is there anything I can do that would surprise people? You know, I don't. And nearly everything that I've, I've sort of realized this: nearly everything that I enjoy and that I can do, I've put into the job. Uh, so even with, I've started, you know, I've started, I like reading, but now that, but now I do a podcast where I ought talk to authors. So I've met, I've managed to make that into my job because I wasn't reading many books, but now I read, I'm reading or listening to like at least a book a week, but it's for my job. So I, even when I think this is a way I can relax and do something I enjoy, I still turn it into work. So I think nearly everything that I can do, is there anything I can do? I don't think I don't think I just don't think there's any I don't think I have any secrets. I don't have any skills really aside from you know being able to make some people laugh <laughs> and and make other people angry for me not being able to make them laugh. Yeah, I don't know. If anything comes to me I'll I'll email you. But I don't think I've got anything for you there. Richard Herring, it's been brilliant having you answer my Thanks, question questions. Thank you very much indeed.